Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for real estate investors looking to protect their assets, save on taxes, and build their wealth with Clint Coons. Clint is an attorney, author, avid real estate investor, and featured instructor at Anderson's tax and asset protection events held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. What's up, guys? Hey, Clint Coons here. And in this video, what I wanted to do is bring on a good friend of mine that I've been, I've known for years, and he's an investor in real estate. And I want to talk about multifamily investing because, you know, in a lot of my channel and a lot of the videos, I barely touch on multifamily. It's always about single family using LLCs and land trusts and corporations and how to set all that stuff up. But in this video, I want to delve into multifamily because I've been getting a lot of questions on it. And I know that if you're an investor, this is something you're thinking possibly you want to get into at some point in time, or you're ready to actually move into multifamily because there's going to be scale there. And, and I'm not the expert in the field at all, but any information I can give you to help you with your investing, I think is going to be advantageous to you. And it really meets my goal for this channel which is to provide information that is relevant to the investors that follow me. So with that, I want to bring in Matt Faircloth. He's the founder of the DeRosa Group. He's got some really interesting projects that I've seen over the years that he's put together. And what makes him so unique and, and qualified, I feel, to talk on this subject is that a lot of people are, they, they do multifamily, but it's kind of hands-off. You know, They find projects through other people and they're not really into it. And they have a whole group working for them. What Matt does is he goes out there and he finds some really interesting projects. And you can see them on his website. If you go and you check that out, if you go to derosagroup.com, you'll see I've got a link below in the show notes. And you can look at some of the deals that he's put together. And that, I think, really speaks volume. But he's an expert and I've known him that way. And so, Matt, thanks for being on here. It's awesome to have, be here, Clint. Thanks for having me. Hey, so, so why don't you tell the viewers, you know, just briefly, how you got started in, in all of this uh, from a real estate investor perspective and starting investing? Sure. Well, you know, I, in 2000, let's flash back to 2003 when um, I started dating my, my girlfriend, now wife, and she got me to read a little purple book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it tuned me into just the power of passive investing, the power of creating assets, and the power of not trading hours for dollars. At the time, I was renting a apartment, and and I had come across a few bucks at you know a few bucks at 25, 26 years old, and I was able to uh, put together enough to buy a home. And I decided, you know, let me take my two buddies that are renting with me now in the little apartment I had. Let me ask these two guys if they want to move with me. And so the two of them moved with me to the house that I bought, and each of them paid me five hundred dollars a month, and my mortgage was nine sixty, and I was so I, or, uh, so I was living there for free. Right. And I was making, you know, at 20, you know, 26, 27 years old, I'm, I'm now making a couple of dollars and I've, I've got a earned income salary, but I have no, I have just about no housing expenses. So that right there was the Kool Aid that, that was the little blue pill that I swallowed and said, okay, I'm in, I'm going all in on this. And so fast forward uh, from there, I quit my job and started, just started to invest full time. And my wife and I, once we got married, invested a bit in smaller real estate. We were in single family homes. We got into small multis and worked our way up into larger and larger real estate from there. So unlike a lot of the other folks that are in multifamily, we actually worked our way into larger and larger deals, which eventually grew into bigger and bigger apartment complexes. We didn't just get into real estate to start investing in multifamily. We actually grew up into multifamily. Now, as of today, we've got assets in Kentucky, North Carolina, 
uh, we crossed the thousand mark, the thousand unit mark about six months ago, and we're in. Uh, we're we're really excited about the way that it goes. We used to self manage, by the way, Clint. So we managed a lot of the properties ourselves. So I learned about tenant relations. I learned about selecting the right tenants. I learned about a lot of things that it takes to hands on manage and scale a single family for a small portfolio of rentals. That and I still carry those lessons today in, into my business and, and that. So it's a. Uh, been an exciting journey and we've we've scaled and grown from a mom and pop into a, a fairly corporate sized company now. Okay. So I mean you started out with house hacking before that was even a term is yeah. what you said there. But if someone's getting or they're investing in real estate, they're just getting started. Do you think then it's best that they start with single family homes and and, and then build up or can you just jump right into multifamily? Okay. If you it depends on your age, your familiar, your familial status, and and your desire to be a little uncomfortable to reach your financial goals, right? So if you are in a situation, I'm talking about listeners are in a situation where where they're able to live in a small multi, let's say live in a duplex, triplex, a fourplex, because you can get agency backed, you know, debt, you can get you know uh, FHA uh, first time home buyer financing at five percent down and live in a duplex. So if your family and or your spouse or just by yourself are comfortable uh, living in a duplex, even if you're you know used to living a lot larger, you're comfortable moving into a small multi, that is by far the best bang for your buck because of the debt that you can get on these properties. The, the debt's very, very cheap with regards to what the interest is. It's locked for 30 years and it's very, very little money down to get into a small multi deal. So if folks have the means and the desire and the willingness to be a little uncomfortable to hit their financial goals. I recommend that's the path. So that's one direction. We can talk multi from there. So that's where you would start out if you're just starting in the business. But let's assume that you have two or three rental properties and you're wondering, should I continue on the single family route or should I go to the multifamily route? It depends on how hands-on you want to be in the business. I have a friend that has 200 units of mostly single families. Now, he runs it all himself with a small team. He you know, makes a very good income on it, but he wants to be in it and wants to be micro. And it's also taken him about 15 years to build that. The plus side for him is he owns 100% of that portfolio. That's all his. He has not taken any dilutions or anything like that. Now, if you want to scale into big multi, you want to do it faster. And you want to, he, this person, a friend of mine, maybe would like to get into bigger multi, but he can't because he's not you know, the, the resources to scale into larger multi typically requires that you start selling equity. I just mentioned my book, Raising Private Capital here, talks about how to find people in your network that are interesting, interested to contribute passive equity into real estate. So if you want it, if you're a single family operator and you, you've got some, some assets and you've you know, cut your teeth a bit and you want to scale into larger, then the, the way that we did it and the way I recommend you consider doing it is by finding larger assets that are probably larger than you can take down yourself and bringing together a small group of investors to uh, to join you as passive investors on the deal. You step in as the managing operator and then those passive investors step in behind you and you form an arrangement and you, you've pretty much sold them security to invest in your deal. And that involves the SEC a little bit, but it's not that complicated. And it's in, in essence, that is called a syndication. And it could be small. My first syndication was a small group of single family homes that that one investor put in 50k. So a syndication does not need to be millions they typically are, but it does not need to be millions and millions of dollars. It can be way 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 smaller than that. But that a syndication the word simply means a group of people doing something that one of them couldn't do by themselves. 
Okay. So before we talk about that in more detail, let's assume that I want to go into this. Then what are some of the things that, you know, let's say the top five things that I need to focus on or I should look for in evaluating whether or not this makes it a great investment? Because what I've heard a lot of is that it's overvalued. That yes. Hard to find properties that produce a good return. So, what do you what what would you say someone should look for? You want to look for deals, and and you know, first of all, you're right. It is overvalued. Things are things are getting bit up and up and up. Part of that has to do with the interest rates have gone down, and it's caused cap rates to go down along with it. And that, and just you know, just money's gotten cheaper and cheaper, especially on the agency debt side. You know, borrowing money from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to do larger multifamily deals. But aside from that. There's a lot more people in the space. Uh, it's become a place that a lot of a lot of money's gone to to seek shelter and and to seek uh, protection as inflation happens and as COVID happens and things like that. You know, people have run to essentials, which is you know housing being one of them, right? So yeah, it's it's a way more competitive space to find good deals in the multifamily space. You got to find something that has some undesirable element to it that you wanted that you're willing to deal with that the next investor is not. So that could mean that the property needs a lot of physical work. It could mean that it's in a market that not everyone's shopping. So maybe not downtown Atlanta or downtown Denver, which is very, very high affinity for those markets, maybe Detroit, maybe you know Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is where some of our properties are. So maybe not a, a, a number one market, maybe a tertiary or a secondary market, right? And that, so those are some things that you could do. So to, to avoid, I, my, my father-in-law taught me an adage a long time ago, observe the masses and do the opposite, right? So you've got to find a, a way to, to work your way into multi that you're not competing with, with you know, a couple hundred of your best friends uh, looking, you know, that are all looking at the same deal. So how do you know you're going to you know, get the tenants to, to fill the property? I mean, how do you analyze that in a particular market? What should I look for? Well, well, here's what we do. We look at, let's just say for an example, that, that you know, Matt and Clint are looking at a deal and it's a 50 unit and it's in downtown Albuquerque. I don't know. I love to pick on the city of Albuquerque just because the name's fun to say. So I'm like, okay, so we're looking at a deal in downtown Albuquerque and we know we want to charge $1,000 for a two bedroom apartment, right? So what I will do is I will look at the surrounding area around that multifamily. I look at the city of Albuquerque to begin with and figure out the, the big number. What is the median income for the city? And then I go a next step down. And there are websites you can use to get this data. What is the median income around the property? You know, what's the expendable income that people may have? And I looked at that to say, okay, can someone earning 40K a year afford to live in my complex? And so that that's how I determine if I'm going to be able to get rents and be able to, if I'm going to be able to, most of the time in multifamily, you're going to buy it for a number. And then you want to try and create some value by adding a playground or renovating apartments and doing granite and stainless or, you know, repainting, doing the flooring, some upgrades, and then commanding a small increase in rents to justify those improvements you've made. Right. But you want to know to your point, is the market going to bear me going, taking the rents in Albuquerque from a thousand to 1200? So you're going to look around the surrounding area to see if, if folks can't afford to live in those apartments. And the equation you want to use there is uh, most property management companies are going to approve tenants that make more than three times the rent as their earned income before income tax. So if the person's earning $5,000, let's say easy numbers, $3,000 a month before income tax, they can afford to pay $1,000, not twelve, dollars not $1,300 in rent. So if I push rents, 
I'm pushing above the person that makes 3000 a month, right? So I need to see a, a, a large population of people that are making four or five, $6,000 a month that may be willing to live in my apartment complex in the surrounding area. So yeah, so you, what you're really doing is an affordability, an affordability analysis, which is very important to do in the beginning. Because to your point, you know, what if the market can afford what I want to do to this property? Same thing that comes in, in a fix and flip or another real estate venture. You got to make sure that there's enough demand for what you want to supply. So when you when you go into those buildings, so you're looking to do something with you know, we would call a value add. Yeah. And you're looking at materials right now that are up 30%. Yeah. So how, do, how is that factoring into the projects when, when you're evaluating these? To make sure that you're going to recoup your investment, you know, get a decent return. It's an interesting question. Um, I, we're not a ground up. We're, we're not a new build uh, company. If we were doing new build, I would be tracking lumber and plumbing, and and I'd be tracking, you know, copper and, and, and lumber quite a bit because, as you know, uh, those things are up a ton right now. The work that we do typically involves finished products, so uh, laminate vinyl plank flooring and uh, appliances. The problem we're having on materials is not so much price bumps because we're not buying raw, we're buying finished finished things. Mm -hmm. The problem we're having is lead time. We used to be able to get appliance sets. We buy them from GE. So I I could get them from GE at five kitchens on a truck, you know, just show up and deliver five kitchens worth of of supplies. And I would order it in on a two to three day lead time, right? Now you're four weeks out for appliances. So we have to anticipate needing appliances when the units are occupied. So you have to start developing storage. We, we've put sea containers at a few of our properties and put appliance sets in them or a material that I want to stockpile. So to answer your question, Clint, you have to start like, what am I going to need in the next three to four months? And, and just you want to try and get ahead of it and order to the site. So we're, we're that's what we do is we try and stockpile materials on site and just let it sit under lock and key until I need it. Just because, you know, since COVID and even stuff that hasn't really flowed out to society yet, like the blockage in the Suez Canal, the ripple effect of that has not fully made its way into our consumer side results yet. We're starting to see the beginning of it, but I don't think we've seen all the effects of that. Okay. So, you know, when you're looking at a building, one of the questions that I always have is how many one bedroom studios, two bedrooms, three bedrooms. And we just closed earlier this year on in Winston Salem on a 140 unit complex. And we're neighbors. Yeah, I know we are. I was surprised <laughs> that came across my mind. Then I was talking to a good friend of mine Sunday. He's a developer and they're putting in a project near where I live. And he said they're doing micro units in yeah. addition. So they, they have 15 or 20% of the space to micro units that are about 500 square feet. It looks like a hotel room is how he explained it to me. So here I am, I'm, I'm evaluating this. How do you go and determine what is the right mix for that investment, that market? It's different as a developer. There's a lot more demographic studies they have to do because they've got to build something that's going to have a longevity for the next 10, 15 years. For us, there's just deals that we will and won't do. I like to see a nice blend of ones and twos. And the, the size deals that we do are typically mid to large size multifamily. So you typically don't see that many threes and four uh, bedroom units, but a lot of ones and twos. I typically will not buy something that we were offered a deal on. Uh, it was like 71 bedrooms. Wouldn't do that deal because I think you, you got to have some blend of demographics, blend of people at different stages of life and things like that. If you look at who's going to live in a one bedroom, it's either going to be you know an, an adult looking to get their feet on the ground, or it's going to be someone towards the you know like like a senior 
likely not someone in the middle in the middle age spectrum, and hopefully not somebody with kids, because you wouldn't want to have someone with kids living in a one bedroom. You know, they, they might try and make it work, but that's that they're going to be uh, not a stable tenant, let's say. And then you also don't want to have a bunch of two bedrooms only because you're going to have an overwhelming amount of kids. You're going to have an overwhelming amount of uh, families and they'll probably be busting at the seams and stuff like that. So we look for around a 50-50 blend of ones and twos. That's what I look for on units. And we've turned deals down that were full spectrum two bedrooms and full spectrum one bedrooms. Now I look for a 50-50 mix of the two in the middle. And then I will try and create amenities to make the family stick so I'll do um, playgrounds, I'll do things that are, that are just family oriented. And then a lot of people, a lot of people in one bedrooms tend to have, believe it or not, people that rent a one bedroom are more likely to have a pet in that. So I'll do pet parks and things like that, that are more pet friendly as well. So I'll do things to try and make both those demographics stick in their units and stay long. When I say stick, I mean, I want them to stay longer than the average, which is about seven years per unit is what people tend to say. But I want them to stay longer than that because the biggest thing that hurts you on multifamily is vacancy. And if I can reduce vacancy at or near zero, we just make more cash flow as owners. So you recommend self-managing at first or just hiring professional management? So I got started self-managing. Mm-hmm. I think that if you've got the gut for it or if you, if you want to thicken your skin up, then self-managing will do that. But as you scale, I, I know I know people that own bigger multifamily that they self-manage, but they're they're hiring in-house teams and they're not truly self-managing. They're just owning the management company. I think that that most multifamily owners rely on professional property management companies that manage large swaths of property of, of properties that know multifamily very, very well. They know how to run it like a top and they can execute business plans. So I, I believe in third-party management wholeheartedly. On bigger multifamily, on small single family, it's tough to outsource management. So I would say if you want to stay small, you know, duplexes, triplexes, maybe a 10 unit here or there, self-management might be the way to go, give you a lot more control. And it's tough to find a professional company that can run that size asset for you. Okay. So one of the things that, you know, when you're looking at properties, are you looking for certain, you know, middle income Bs or Cs? And I'm curious because right now there's an area of the market that my partner and I, we've identified, and that's low-income housing, mm-hmm. that really needs housing to be made available for them. And so we've put a lot of effort into finding deals that fit that demographic of the market and providing that. And we've, you know, Section 8, yeah, but you also find charities, good uh, United Way, that they'll help supplement the rents for, mm-hmm. for individuals. And that's a different style of investing. I grew up in that. My dad, I remember as a kid, we, we took a hospital, an old hospital and converted it into that type of housing. Mm-hmm. And so it was a great, great investment for my, my parents to do that. So if you're out there and you're looking around, I mean, do you shy away from that? Or would that be an area that where people aren't really looking right now? Maybe that's an opportunity for the people who are watching. I think that what you described is a perfect niche. Cause I think that Remember I said, observe the masses and do the opposite. Yep. People aren't seeking. There is a stigma with affordable and low-income housing that a lot of people try and avoid. It's like, oh, it's going to be hard to collect rents. Or, oh, there's going to be crime issues. Or, oh, there's going to be whatever made-up story you have in your head about affordable housing uh, that's likely not true. And it's going to keep people away from affordable housing. So I think it's a, certainly a niche that, that's worth pursuing. We are a little different. We're, we're what uh, I, I am workforce housing. So we pursue class C. Uh, there are some Section 8, there's some Section 8 blended into what we do. 
but it's probably in, in the five to 10% of the total you know, unit count range. The biggest competition you're going to see is in class B real estate, class B and class A. You know, A is like, you know, newer construction, top end. B is stuff that was built maybe in the 80s or 90s that maybe could use a facelift, some value add, but it's probably fairly uh, up with the market. People that earn way above the median typically live in B-class real estate. And that just maybe needs a little spruce. C is typically stuff that was built in the 70s and 80s, maybe some functional obsolescence, but you can bring it back with, with the needs a little TLC. The best value add plays that I see are in are in C class or in the seventy to eighty uh, vintage, and it's not it doesn't go down by there's D class, but that's just property that just hasn't been maintained. I've seen D class stuff that was built in the eighties, nineties, and two thousands. It really has to do with how it's managed and whether or not they kept up with deferred maintenance, whether or not let, let the place just get torn apart by the tenants or something like that. But we tend to not go to D class. We'll go and do a C and value added up to like a C plus and do what I call workforce luxury. I know you brought up something that was, I find intriguing is that people have preconceived notion about lower income housing. And I've never experienced that. I mean, the tenants that we we deal with, they've been great. And yeah, they maybe they're on hard times, but they still want to pay. They have self-respect and they don't tear the places up. And mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes that you run into that. So one of the things I look for, which I'm going to pass on, uh, if on section eight, that I ran into in Oklahoma is that the city doesn't take them off. So if somebody does trash your place and then you got to get it, then re-section eight qualified, bring it up to standards and you, you report the individual tenant, they won't do anything. They won't cut them off. And so that's something now that I've realized that it, it, before I begin offering that in the future in the different locations where we invest, I'm going to make sure that there, there's some penalties. And so that keeps mm-hmm. people honest. So they're not going to destroy your place because they realize then they're going to lose their section eight that they're on. And no one wants to lose yeah, that. Well, right. And there's some, there are rules around that where like the tenant doesn't pay it in, in single families. We still own a lot of single families, but the tenant doesn't pay their side of the water bill. It doesn't pay their side of the rent contribution. You still can't evict. And if they get evicted, then they're supposed to lose to Section 8. But as you said, the Section 8, the Section 8 office sometimes doesn't process that. And so it's still important to do a background check and to do a, to do a rental history check and to do a credit check. And, and that may, you know, income might not be there. They might not have the income required to live in your unit, but with some help from the government, they can, they can likely qualify, right? So it's still, you still have to do your due diligence as an owner and not say, oh, I'm doing affordable housing. So anyone that's on the program can now live in my apartment. That, my friend, is how you end up with the element you don't want, you know, drugs and, you know, and, and people not paying and people that are going to damage your units and stuff like that. Because there is data you can get out there in that. So, yeah, it's, it's a great point. But I, I just, the folks that I've encountered, they don't want to do like lie tech deals, low-income housing tax credits. But those can be very lucrative. Yep. Section 8 didn't miss a, didn't miss a beat during the, the COVID crisis. Now, if you remember during the government shutdown uh, and in like 2016, 2017, when they were, you know, having that, when, they, when the government was playing chicken with each other on, you know, mm-hmm. signing off on the budget bill and the budget and the budget kind of like the government got defunded for like a month or something like that. Yep. Uh, Section 8 did get affected by that, but they got caught up. You hold your breath for a month and, and then you get, you get double check, you know? So that's, the worst that could happen is you may get delayed payments if something like that happened again. But COVID didn't really affect low-income housing. You know? No, not at all. Just, yeah, I mean, you you didn't miss a beat. We did. We nope. got hurt. But yeah. you, uh, your properties, like you're talking about, probably didn't uh, didn't miss it. Didn't blank. Yeah, the rent really strong. So then, financing wise, so you talk. So if I want to get into this, what are some things 
you know, just off quickly that somebody has to be prepared for. So if you're looking to take down a unit, what should I be doing ahead of time to make sure I can qualify from a financing perspective? Well, it's less what you got to go through to qualify for like a single family home or a small purchase or something like that. It's less about like, well, let me make sure that my credit score is up and let me make sure I've got, you know, three years worth of tax returns and my financial statements together. They will likely need a lot of that, but they're more going to be concerned with the property and with your or your team's resume and managing something of this size. So I would make sure that your business resume, not like you're going to get hired for a job, but your track record resume is together. Everything else you've managed. The bank may tell you they might need to see a stronger sponsor or someone on the loan that has a deeper expense, a, a deeper experience resume. And that may be something you might have to go find in your network. And then above that, make sure that you on the property side have clean, understandable rent rolls and trailing 12 financial statements and a pro forma showing what you want the property to do. It's really, it's going to be a vetting on your skill set and ability to run the property and on the property itself versus your finances and everything like that. So I think that's what you need to prepare to get truly vetted for a loan on these types of things. So I've told people in the past during consultations that when they're getting started on that, if they want to go a little bit larger than, you know, fourplex, they want to get into something that's 40 units, 50, 100, that they should find someone like you described, because those are going to be experience-based loans or asset-based loans. That means you don't have to give a guarantee, but they're also going to be based on the experience so that you can prove to the lender that you know how to operate it. So I'll tell them to partner with someone that has that experience. Now, my assumption has been that if I partnered with you, for example, on a deal, I found the deal, brought you into the deal to, to help me put this whole thing together. That experience that I get from working with you on this deal, could I then parlay that in the future to get my own deals going where I wouldn't need to partner? Does, does it work that way with lenders? Because you can show, hey, I did this deal. I was working with someone else, but I get to take that as my own experience now. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're going to see that you had another sponsor on the last deal, but you're going to get to add the deal you just did to your net worth statement and to your balance sheet. And eventually, the lender will see a resume and a balance sheet that makes sense to them. So yeah, I mean, we um, have had a few people that worked that that worked with us initially and now are able to do deals on their own that we kind of came in and were the balance sheet or were the mentorship or were the uh, structure for them that enabled them to get their lending. And now they don't, they're able to do it on their own now. So yeah, you can graduate beyond using, it's called getting a sponsor, but getting a, or a co-sponsor, co-GP, whatever you call it. There's folks that have grown beyond that. And you can certainly grow out of that as well to do things on your own. Yeah, because a lot of people think they need to own the entire thing and they need to make all the money off it. And, you know, I was taught one time, you know, bulls make money, bears make money and hogs get slaughtered. Yeah. And I use that a lot when I talk to someone like, no, I want it all. I'm not going to share it. I'm like, you're not going to get this deal. So it's either rather than have half of something, you're going to have all of nothing unless you're willing to share it. And then you can grow from there. Now you guys, you do that. I mean, I know you set up syndications, right? Where people can come and they can invest into your projects. Yeah. So we we do that. I I mean, like I went from owning like, you know, a hundred percent of a lot of deals that we do to, you know, we're just, we just um, got an LOI accepted on a deal in Kentucky and my company will end up with 11.5% of that deal. And that's okay. I'm fine, fine with that. Because like you said, it's 11.5% of a big, large multifamily asset that'll put plenty of equity in my pocket and our investors are going to do very well. 
and it, it gets it more into a, just a bigger picture type of thing. I mean, Bill Gates doesn't didn't own all of Microsoft. I mean, he had to. If you look at any company, any company eventually, either through partnership with other resources or through selling equity to investors, is going to need to get diluted. You know, and so if you can let go of it, needs to be all mine, as you said. Then, uh, then it enables you to grow. I mean, I, I know I know no one that owns thousands of units and owns them all themselves. Even Sam Zell, a lot of the huge names, you know, maybe billionaires in real estate, but they also had to work with investors to help get them to that level, and then sell off a lot of equity to to enable them to, to get into larger assets. It's just the way of the world. It's just it's just the way it goes, and it's a good symbiotic relationship. So it's, I'm, not only am I okay with it, I love it, and it's put and it's it's uh, it enables me to benefit other people's finances through what I do in my company. And then by helping people reach their net worth goals through investing with the Dorosa Group or investing in apartment complexes, we have available for syndications that they couldn't have found on their own. Which brings me to this point uh, that I want to end with. What about resources that are out there that if someone is considering moving up to this next level, where should they check out on the web to find areas, to evaluate properties? I mean, is there anything that you use or you highly recommend? Yeah. I'll go with the three M's, Clint. Uh, money, market, and management. And so uh, we'll start with market. I know you should have started with market anyway. If they want to get into the game and, and scale up in a larger real estate, they cannot be one of these people out there talking about how they want to buy a multifamily anywhere in the continental United States. They've got to choose a market. Winston-Salem, uh, you know, Albuquerque, you know, wherever it is, you, you know, the, just you know, Bismarck, Bismarck, North Dakota, right? I want to be in that market. That's where I want to buy my multifamily. Get to know the market, get to know the people that are players in the market, get to know the brokers, get to know the good blocks and bad blocks. And then the money side, and you know, just to mention my book, Raising Private Capital, talks about how to find the money in your own network and structure syndication deals with people that are in your network that want to be passive. And the management side is you've got to find who's going to run that asset for you because with the right, the right deal with plenty of money is still going to fall on its face if the business plan isn't executed properly. So you got to have all three of the M's met, market, money, management, to be successful in this game. And get, getting those three foundational items set up first is what it's going to take to be successful. Are there any websites you would tell people that they could look at that could help them along this road? Sure. Biggerpockets.com is a great place to get started. Once you've chosen your market, LoopNet is a great place to start. Not that like there's like lot. LoopNet is not a source for lots of great deals. Most of the deals on LoopNet have been picked over, but LoopNet is a great way to get connected to brokers that are offering in a market. So if you choose Charlotte, North Carolina as your market, you can go pull up Charlotte on LoopNet and connect with brokers and say, listen, the deal you have here is not the right one for me, but call me the next time you need a deal. So LoopNet's a great way to network, believe it or not. People don't look at it that way, but it should be used that way. And that, and then there's also, I would consider even going on the agency uh, websites, Franny May, Freddie Mac, and understanding their financing guidelines, understanding what it is that you need to put forth to get financed on deals. What are their, what's their high end and low side? And then you'll, you'll get to know deals that may work for the federal agencies that can finance deals, which is pretty much the best financing deal you're going to get. So those are some resources out there. And of course, Bigger Pockets, as I mentioned, is a great networking site for meeting other investors. Lots of articles you can read and books you can read and stuff like that on the subject. So that's a great place to start too. And the thing about it is, is I'd like to end on this point is that you talk about money. That's important if you're going to take it down. But if you find a deal that you can't qualify for based upon the lending guidelines, 
still, if it's a deal, tie it up because you can always partner with someone like yourself. Yeah. You can help. I, would, I mean, a deal is a deal. There are plenty of people like me out there that are looking for opportunities. They either got more money than you got deals, or you got more deals than you got money. You know, you, you got one, you got two money. There's no symbiotic, there's no balance between the two. You either have more of one or more of the other. It's what it is. So if you've got more deals than you have money, find someone who has more money than they have deals or vice versa and find a way to structure a partnership and it'll just help you raise your game and, and you know get things to the next level for your investors and for your business. Hey, Matt, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate this. And I know the viewers that, that, that watched all the way through this point are going to get a lot of information out of here. We've got some links down in the show notes that they can click on to find your website and some of those other sites that you mentioned. Uh, anything you want to leave or say in passing? No, it's been great. Just check us out at derosagroup.com. Clint's been great having you here. Derosagroup.com is a place to go. If you if they want to learn from us, invest with us, check out my book, check out my YouTube channel. All of that is there at derosagroup.com. All right. Thanks, Matt. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.